And so I pray this morning that our time together would help break the allure of prosperity in our lives, that we would be captivated by you, by your grace, by your mercy, uh, the promises that you make to us, uh, God. And we walk away uh, this morning changed uh, by having met with you. And so we pray you'd come this morning by the power of your spirit. Would you speak to your people through your word? And so let's start with this, this problem of prosperity here. We've already read about it briefly, but if you're following along here in chapter 13, we see it, and I'll just highlight it again really quickly. In verse 2, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. So this man has prospered. If you learned last week, right, you know, he goes down into Egypt, um, the Pharaoh, because he had you know, given her his wife, pimped her out essentially. He was enriched massively with silver, gold, livestock, all of this stuff. And now he's heading back to the land loaded down with riches. So that's verse 2. And then to verse 5, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And so you, you get the story here. Abram has been blessed by God. If you remember back in chapter 12, um, God had promised that blessing would follow him wherever he goes, that those who blessed him would be blessed, and that, his, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so Abram is experiencing the blessing of God. He's got all these extra riches, Lot, his nephew, has all these extra riches. Um, But the problem, of course, with having this many riches is they create their own problems, right? Prosperity comes with its own set of problems. And we have to recognize that here in our culture, in our context. Here in our text, though, Abram and his nephew, right, they've grown so rich the land's not able to support their flocks. Good pasture and water sources were hard to come by in the bare limestone hills of Canaan, especially for such massive herds, so quarrels break out. God has blessed Abram massively, uh, but that's caused quarrels to break out and fights to happen. And sometimes in our lives, right, that happens, right? We're, We're blessed by God to such an extent, filled with so many good things that that can cause its own unique set of problems. I just want to pause here to highlight the fact that sometimes prosperity can actually be a bigger challenge for us than navigating adversity. Right? When we're in trouble, we realize we need help. Right? There's the old saying, right? there are no atheists in foxholes. Right? When, when people are shooting at you and trying to kill you, right? you recognize you need help. Even atheists are praying to God in those contexts and in those situations. Right? When the bottom falls out, we've got nowhere else to turn. We're like, oh yeah, maybe God, maybe God is there. <laughs> yeah, I've tried everything else. Um, and so that works for us. But the problem with prosperity is that we can be totally oblivious for our need for help. Or worse, think we have everything under control. We have navigated life so successfully by our wisdom, discernment, and dashing good looks and upbeat personality that we have pretty much won the day. And so prosperity comes with its own set of dangers. And um, by pretty much any metric, we're pretty prosperous here in West Michigan. We have this vibrant, growing city, lots of economic growth and opportunity. Uh, We've been sheltered from some of the drama facing some of the bigger cities, some of the bigger uh, challenges that are going on. I mean, we've got it pretty good here 
in West Michigan. I realize not everyone has that experience. You know, we're living near like the poorest zip code in our neighborhood. Um, is right next door, just a few blocks away. But of course, we happen to be living in the most affluent, and our building is in the most affluent neighborhood in the city. We're right next to East Grand Rapids. All kinds of wealth and affluence. If you drove down Plymouth today, you drove kind of by Millionaire Row. There are all the mansions and, and nice cars and all of that kind of stuff. And so we have all of this uh, advantage, economic advantage, living here. And I've lived here now 10 years And I could see this temptation play out in my own heart as I'm looking at different homes and cars, clothes, you know, that cabin up north that, you know, everyone's got to have. Like, boy, you just settle into this comfortable, wonderful West Michigan lifestyle, uh, but it can start to get a hold on your heart. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, this is is starting to grip my heart. And here's here's the problem. You're saying, what's the problem with that? I mean... (laughs) Cars, homes, nice, wonderful, relaxing. What's the problem? What could possibly be wrong with that? Living in this wonderfully comfortable community in which we find ourselves. Here's the problem, right? All of this prosperity can lull us into spiritual complacency if we're not vigilant. Or we could be so busy keeping up with the Joneses that we just neglect or lose track of our spiritual life altogether, right? Have you experienced that in your life, right? When things are going well, you're like, I got this, man. You know, you really need God. I can just put my spiritual life on cruise control, just kind of phone things in and kind of keep cruising until, until something bad happens. Then maybe God might get our attention. Or maybe, you know, entering into this fall season, you feel that in your heart, right? You're just going so hard and so busy and you're hustling after it, Um, But that busyness, right, hasn't left a lot of space in your life for an actual relationship with God, for time to meet with him and encounter him. Uh, Prosperity, right, gives us all these incredible opportunities for more and better and greater, uh, but it can push out the best thing in our lives, and that is our relationship with God. And so we could see this playing out very subtly in Abram and Lot's different approaches to prosperity, right? They've both been blessed. We saw in verse 2, Abram has a massive amount of riches, right? He's very rich with livestock and silver and gold. And then in verse 5, and Lot also has flocks and tents and all of the prosperity. Both of these men have been incredibly blessed by God. Uh, But we see two different approaches to the problem of prosperity in their lives. And so let's look a little bit more closely here at Abraham's proposal here as it relates to this problem of prosperity in verses 8 through 9. So Abraham has an idea here. Look, we're arguing, our herdsmen are quarreling um, because we just got way too much riches here. Here's here's his proposed solution in verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're family, right? Isn't that the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I'm going to take the right. Or if you take the right, I will take the left. And so Abram gives this, you know, beautiful proposal here. He's like, why, why are we fighting? We're family, man. Like, why are we making a big deal? We're both rich. Like, you know, let's just, let's just not fight here. Let's, let's get along. And I think at first glance, we just think, yeah, this is just kind of common sense. You know, Abraham's just being kind of a chill, laid-back sort of dude, right? I mean, he's just like, whatever, I don't want to get into fight here. But as we dig deeper, I think we're going to see that something, there's actually, this is actually an expression in his life of a growing and maturing faith. God is doing something in the heart of Abraham through this experience, and we're starting to see a heart that has been transformed 
by the goodness of God, the promises of God, the grace of God. Because as the head of the family, right, Abraham was already entitled to the best of the land, right? Lot is just his nephew, right? He's just kind of this tag along that came along for the ride, right? Abraham is the patriarch of the family, right? He can claim the best of the land for himself. That's his right. That's what would have been expected in that culture. Uh, Not only that, Abraham's the one responsible for all their riches in Egypt, right? So he is the one that has massively enriched their family. The reason Lot has so many flocks and herds is because Abraham was given all those flocks and herds by Pharaoh. And so the whole reason Lot has the wealth that he has is all because of his uncle Abraham. And most importantly, God has already promised the entire land to Abram. So everything in front of them is already there. It's the land that's already there. Abraham is entitled to all of it. And so Abram has every reason to take the best of the land, but notice what he does instead. He, he humbly defers to his nephew, right? He's, he's leaning into his values. He's saying, look, we're family, right? Let's not fight. You take the first pick of the land. You go one way, I'm going to go the other way. And obviously, Abram you know, is aware, right, that there is better land and worse land for livestock, right? He could have chosen the richest land for himself, and he would have been entitled to do that. Everyone would have expected him to do that. Uh, But here in chapter 13, he's trusting God to take care of him, right? He isn't scheming like he was in Egypt, right? How can I save my skin? And, you know, maybe if I tell my wife to just say she's my sister, we're going to be okay. Abraham's not scheming. He's not maneuvering here. Uh, We see Abraham in a place of trust with God. He's starting to walk with God. He's leaning into his values, right? We're family. Why, why would family fight over pasture land? Like, we can figure this out. He's leaning into this value for shalom, for peace, for flourishing. He's like, there's plenty of land in front of us for us both to grow and flourish together. Why are we fighting over this land? And so, Abraham's starting to exercise faith in God's promises, in God's provision. He's starting to see with eyes of faith, which is a beautiful thing, right? As he's starting to step out on this journey of faith. Uh, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews eleven nine 9 through 10, uh, these things, he says, by faith, Abram went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer And builder is God. You see, Abram is starting to catch the bigger vision for what God wants to do in the world. And so his response here is marked by trust in God, self-sacrifice, servant leadership. We're starting to see a man who's living on mission as God would have him live. He's got open hands, right, as it relates to all this prosperity in the land in front of him. And we see this beautiful response of faith. And Abram's response is in stark contrast to his nephew Lot, uh, as we see in verses 10 through 13. So let's pick it up here in verse 10, if you're following along. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, which they had just been in, which was a bad idea. So that should already be saying, this this is not going to go well here. Uh, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This is another foreshadowing here. If you know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah, these are not good places. Not good places to be. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, which um, Adam and Eve uh, had to do ever since they got kicked out of the garden, right? East of Eden is where they find themselves. Thus they separated from each other, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far 
as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so what we see here already, right, we see Abraham leaning into his values, learning to faith and trust in God. You know, he's leaning into this value of family, shalom, mutual flourishing. Lot, on the other hand, has a short-sighted vision of success and some rather questionable values, right? The narrator wants to see that he's clearly not concerned about the significance of the promised land, right? Verses 11 through 12 tells us he's headed east to the cities of the valley while Abram is going to settle in the land of Canaan in God's promised land. He doesn't seem to be all concerned to preserve his relationship with Uncle Abram. He's like, Uncle Abram, what? I'm out of here. I got riches. I got flocks. I got herds. I got to take care of myself. And so he breaks off the relationship with his Uncle Abram. And when he's doing that, he's also breaking off his relationship with God and all of his promises to Abraham. He is separating himself from the God of those promises. Um, He's looking at the most fertile part of the land to support his flocks and saying, I'm taking it, right? I mean, this is shameless self-promotion, right? And he's also ignoring what the narrator keeps telling us um, and keeps interrupting our account to say the people of this land are notorious sinners, right? These are people that are going to pull you down. These are not people that are going to help you thrive in your walk with the Lord, right? So here in chapter 12, uh, Lot pitches his tent near Sodom, right? Which is the kind of the equivalent of sin, the sin city of Canaan, right? I mean, this is the city where the most notorious sinners are living. It's a crazy place. In chapter 12, he just pitches his tent near that city. Uh, by chapter 14, he's living in Sodom. And by chapter 19, he's at the city gate and giving his daughters in marriage. And so we see the whole trajectory of Lot's life, right, is, is bending in the wrong way. It's bending away from God and his promises towards the most obvious wealth and prosperity, uh, the most ostentatious kind of living. Um, John Calvin uh, summed up the situation like this in some pretty hard-hitting words. He said, Lot fancied he was dwelling in paradise, but he was nearly plunged into hell. Okay, this is the assessment, right, as we look at this text and as we consider the peril in which Lot is placing himself, right? Um, He is putting himself in grave danger. And I don't know how often, right, do we pursue prosperity only to find that its promises are overrated, right? They promise heaven, and yet we find ourselves so often closer uh, to hell. Whereas on the contrary, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.6, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. But Lot finds himself longing for the most obvious prosperity they can get his hands on, regardless of the danger. And so how is this problem of prosperity playing out in your life? Are you being driven more by your values as a Christian, right? Values about family and values about uh, growth with God, walking with God, values of shalom, spreading the peace of God around you, or more about the American dream, just the bigger, faster, better, smarter, stronger, uh, better looking, you know, all of the ways in which life is just more and better, all the promises of consumerism. Are you trusting God to provide? Are you hustling for the quickest path to prosperity? Uh, so busy uh, chasing down, chasing the Joneses, right? That you don't have any time for your relationship with the Lord. Are you content or are you envious of other people's stuff this morning as you think about your life and looking around you at the prosperity around us, right? Are you envious, right? 
Who's speaking into your life right now? Who are the people, right, that are, that are setting that vision for you, that are casting uh, values for you? Who are the people that are going to be, who are the people you're looking to for the good life? Who are the people that you are eyeing up around you in life to say this is what success and the good life looks like? You see, Lot is in grave danger this morning, and I wouldn't be a good pastor if I did not warn us as well, and most of all, warn myself, right, of the grave danger when we simply look at the world through the lens of how can I get more and better? How can I be more prosperous, right? This season has been certainly challenging for me, moving into a new house, looking at getting some new cars and all the big purchase items, big ticket items. I'm like, man, gosh, this is such a heart-searching thing as I'm thinking through, uh, how am I going to make those decisions? How am I going to be thinking through and living out of my values, right, with all of those important things to do. And so uh, we've got some warnings here, right? A lot is in grave danger. We're going to see throughout the text as this unfolds in this series, right, that, that if you don't live it through eyes of faith, if you're just looking through the eyes of your own selfish desires, right, you're setting yourselves on a trajectory for destruction. But that's not where this text goes this morning. Uh, we don't get to that point today. Uh, instead, we get to look at Abraham and his faith. And so where does Abraham come by this beautiful faith that he displays, this largesse, this value of family, this value of living into the prosperity of God. Uh, Where does he come by this radical generosity, his commitment to really love his family well, his commitment uh, to shalom, his commitment to the ultimate city of God? Uh, I want to close by looking at the object of Abram's faith. See, Abram has experienced God's generosity and largesse, and that's why he wants to spread it around uh, to those closest to him. So notice uh, where this chapter ends in verses 14 uh, through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated with him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you were northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. See, just when you think God is going to start making demands of Abram, he keeps expanding on his promises, right? Remember how Lot lifted up his eyes and chose the land that seemed best to him, this well-watered land uh, along the Jordan Valley. God tells Abram, lift up your eyes in faith and believe that God is going to give you the whole land of Canaan. If that isn't enough, God promises this man with no children, offspring as the dust of the earth. God just keeps promising and upping his promises Again, not only did God invite him to lift up his eyes and look at the promise, he instructs him to walk through it, right? Explore it. Uh, this land is all going to be yours. God is going to provide. God is going to take care of him. And Abram does this, that, right? He worships God at Bethel up in the north at that altar, and then he walks through the land, taking it in all of God's promises step by step as he walks through the land. And then as he comes to the south land, he builds another altar to worship the Lord. And we see that his life is centered around this narrative account is bracketed by Abraham. He's worshiping God in the north of the land. And at the south, then he's, this account ends with Abraham worshiping God. Abraham, Abraham is focused on 
God's promises, God's goodness, and it's slowly transforming him into the man that he is, right? Where, and where Abram's experienced the generosity of God through his breathtaking promises here in Genesis 12 through 13, we get to experience the generosity of God in Christ as a fulfillment of all these long-awaited promises to Abraham. Uh, think of probably the most common, the most familiar verse in the entire Bible, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, right? Here is the promise of life to the fullest in this life and the next through Jesus. That's the kind of gift-giving God he is. He does not hold back even his only son so that we could have life in him. Or uh, Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things, right? This is the kind of God that we have. He doesn't just make great promises to Abram. He makes incredible promises to us to give us all things. And you go, well, what are, what are, they, what are those all things? Like, well, we could mention a few, right? A purpose and meaning in life, significance, right? An identity, who we are as God's people. He's given us a family to be a part of, a bigger mission to be a part of in the world, just to name a few, We have a God who makes massive promises and calls us into a much bigger vision for life than just chasing the Joneses and just material prosperity. He calls us ultimately to be a part of his kingdom and his work in the world. He calls us ultimately that city whose designer and builder is God. We get to be a part of what he's doing in the world. So we grow like Abraham in our faith, as we build our life on the promises of God. And when we are seduced and sometimes succumb to the allure of prosperity, we look to an even greater Abram, who is tempted with the prospect of even greater prosperity and overcame in our place. And so we need to close here with the greater Abraham, because where Abram was tempted to look out over the land and take the richest portions for himself, ignoring his nephew, ignoring the fact that it would break the peace of the family, ignoring the flagrant sinfulness of the people around him. Jesus was tempted by Satan to look out over all the nations of the earth and to claim them for himself, if only if only he would bow down and worship him. You see, Jesus was presented with the ultimate temptation to prosperity, to have all the kingdoms of the world without the cross. But Jesus knew if he were to redeem fallen sinners like Abram and like us, it would only happen through the cross. And so Jesus turned from the counterfeit promises of Satan to rule over an unredeemed world, to enjoy all the prosperity uh, with all the brokenness and squalor still here uh, by looking to an even greater prospect of ruling a world redeemed and restored and renewed through his death and his resurrection. Right? In Jesus' death on the cross, we find forgiveness for all of our failures, right? All of the ways we're attracted by all of the beautiful things around us. Uh, We find forgiveness for our failures and in his resurrection, the promise of new life, a new family, right? A new mission to be a part of. We are a part of these beautiful promises of God. And just like Abraham begins here in chapter 13 to take those first faltering steps of faith, gets a vision for who God is and what he's doing in the world. And we see incredible generosity unleashed in his life. 
an incredible faith happening. God is calling us into those same realities through Jesus. So how can, how can you be nurturing your faith in Christ this week, right? Who's going to point you to Jesus this week as you are confronted with all of the wonderful, shiny, and sparkly things out there that distract us from them? Get some beautiful life transformation groups to walk and journey alongside with men and women who would point you to Jesus. How can you grow in the fine of faith that fosters family, that spreads shalom and is marked by incredible generosity? Those are the kind of people we want to be, right? That's what we want to be marked by as a community. And how can we grow like Abram in our longing for our true home, that city whose builder is God, whose builder and designer is God, right? To have that true longing for our true home, motivating us, uh, not just to be tempted by all the shiny and distracting things around us. Uh, I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this longing for our true home. And I want to close here. Hopefully this ties uh, together uh, the sermon. Uh, But he says this, he says, in speaking of this desire for our own far off country, which we find ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret to each one of each one of you, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that we have never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good things of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. See, this is how we break the illusion of prosperity in our lives, of all the the shiny and attractive things around us. It's, it's a vision for this city whose designer and builder is God. It's this world of love that we have and receive through uh, the body and blood of Jesus as a gift of his incredible grace. We recognize here that all the joys and the pleasures, the experiences are just pointers to our heavenly home. Uh, they're just pointers to the way forward, right? As long as we are looking for those things and in those experiences and end in ourselves, right? Lewis says they're just going to become dumb idols. They're just going to become counterfeit gods. Uh, We think that they're going to bring the satisfaction that we desire and yet they never deliver. So my prayer here for our church is that we would be a church like Abram that sets our eyes not on what is seen, but on more importantly on that city whose designer and builder is God, and that when we fail, we would set our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where he offers grace and mercy for us uh, and a vision for a life for his kingdom. And so let's pray that God might burn this vision into our hearts even this morning. And so, Father, we thank you. Uh, So much for Abram. We thank you for this story. We thank you for his first faltering steps in faith, uh, believing the big promises that you have for him, uh, stepping into 
uh, his values, learning to live by faith. God, would you teach us how to live by faith, to set our eyes on the city whose builder and designer is God. Uh, As we fail and as we struggle, um, God, would we fix our eyes on Jesus, the greater Abraham who overcome came greater temptations in our place and for our sin so that we could be welcomed into his family and to experience all of his lavish grace. And so as we spend time around this table, uh, will we celebrate all the promises that we have in Jesus, all the promises by their yes and amen in Jesus. Would we feast and celebrate over the reality? Will we taste and see that you are good? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Austin, thank you.